If you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to Kids Club. And if you're new with us, Kids Club provides an opportunity for kids four to eight to hear more, a more age-focused message, which means you're always welcome to send them, you're always welcome to keep them, and you're always welcome to go with them. We just want to point that out from time to time. But it's good to be with you. My family and I had a great trip to Texas and back. We did enjoy some 80-degree weather. We are glad to see the negative temperatures again. Um, I'm very thankful for Lenny for filling in for me last week. If you weren't here, it's well worth a listen. Uh, you can always listen to any of our podcasts via the website, iTunes, or other podcasting apps. For the next 11 weeks, with a couple of breaks worked in, we're going to be looking at the New Testament book of Colossians in a series that I've called Our Hope, The Supremacy and the Sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And this is the picture that we're going to try to paint over the next 11 weeks. That Jesus Christ himself and all by himself is our hope, our only hope. And that he alone is supreme and that he alone is sufficient. And the more that we press into both of these realities, the more you'll see how absolutely offensive they are to the world. Because of that, how you'll always be challenged in all of them, just as they've been challenged from the beginning. And hopefully through this, we'll see that the challenge brought to it is insufficient, that you and I would have a faith built on Jesus as he is, Jesus as his word presents him to be, as a fully supreme and completely sufficient Savior for all of our needs. As we see in this short letter that Paul writes to the church in Colossians, that he'll outline both of those ideas for us. You know, a unique thing about this letter is that Paul never really visited Colossae. He received a report, and you'll see in verse 7, he got it from a guy named Epaphras, we'll talk more about him later, who came to Rome to seek out Paul while he was imprisoned, to deal with some false teachers and some heresies that had arisen. So we point that out to you because for you to have a better understanding as we step into this book, for you to understand the book of Colossians, there are two realities that you need to have an appreciation for because there's two realities that over and over and over, overtly and subvertly, Paul attacks both of these thoughts through this letter. The first of which is the Roman Empire. I don't know how much you think about Rome or how much you know about Rome. Most of what I got, I got in a high school Latin class, but I'll give you a brief snapshot. The Roman Empire ruled the world for nearly 1,500 years. At its height, it stretched from India to England, an area covering 4,200 miles and 5 million square kilometers, I didn't translate that into miles for you, and it's an area that currently occupies what is known as 48 countries now, that's Rome, which is to say to you that Rome was very large, and Rome was very dominant. They by far had the largest and most advanced army known to man at that time, and if they wanted it, they took it. And to this day, we still see the marks of Rome throughout our modern culture. I had to memorize the three Romas 
the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, the Roman roads, the Roman law, all these things you still see in our culture. In fact, to this day, Rome built roads and bridges that still stand, which is pretty significant considering we don't do that well these days. Rome was an incredible culture. So why is this important to know? Because if we had walked through the streets of Colossae, and we'd ask people what was going to last, Jesus or Rome, I have a sneaking suspicion nearly everyone would have bet on Rome. And at that point, it would have been a safe bet. Jesus was just a, a man. He had a small following, but Rome, Rome was a machine. Rome was a colossal machine that the people had put their hope in, that they put their confidence in, that they put their trust in. Their peace was Rome. Their hope was Rome. And they believed that Rome was the greatest thing to ever happen. And so Paul, overtly in this letter, is going to put before them that there is a hope that is far greater than Rome. That there is a peace that is far more complete than Rome. And there is a security that is better. In fact, a security that will last longer than 1,500 years. It will last forever. And in any and in every way, Paul will assert in this letter that Jesus alone is supreme and that Jesus alone is sufficient, something that challenged the people at that time and no doubt is a message we need to hear also. And the second reality that Paul is going to take on in this letter is syncretism. Now, syncretism is the idea that you would make a buffet line of religions and philosophies. That we would look at our own practices and we would decide, I want more of this, I want a little bit of that. I should sprinkle some of this in here. We borrow faith practices from a variety of traditions in order to kind of make up what we want to practice. It's as if we want to say, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to give up the idols I worship. I want to follow Jesus, but I, I really like how they do this, so I want to take their practice and incorporate it into my life. It's adding something to the practice of Christianity that's not rooted in Christianity and in fact often denies Christianity. It's a common practice in these days as it was in the church of Colossae. In 1989, Warren Worsby, a great theologian who's still living, wrote of the book of Colossians. It's a long quote, but I'll give it all to you with a nice picture of Warren Worsby. The church today... Keep in mind, this is 1989. The church today desperately needs the message of Colossians. We live in a day when a religious toleration is interpreted to mean one's religion is just as good as another. Some people try to make the best from various religious systems and manufacture their own private religion. To many people, Jesus Christ is only one of several great religious leaders with no more authority than they. He may be prominent, but he is definitely not preeminent. Worsby continues, This is an age of syncretism. People are trying to harmonize and unite many different schools of thought and come up with a superior religion. Our evangelical churches are in danger of diluting the faith in their loving attempt to understand the beliefs of others. Mysticism, legalism, Eastern religions, asceticism, 
and man-made philosophies are secretly creeping into churches. They're not denying Christ, but they are dethroning Him and robbing Him of His rightful place of preeminence. Warren Worsby. Now keep in mind, Dr. Worsby wrote that 28 years ago. That's before the rise of prosperity churches. That's before the rise of popular psychology churches that tell you to feel better about yourself. Worsby forecasted that for us 28 years ago, and I'd suggest to you it's only gotten worse. Well, let's open up our Bibles, or turn to your app, however you access your Bible, to Colossians 1. Let's see how Paul writes this out for us. Colossians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Now, this is a typical way to start a letter in the ancient world. You start with who it's from. In this case, it's Paul, who identifies himself primarily as a sent one of Christ, Jesus. That's significant here that he puts Christ first because he's acknowledging that God is supreme through Jesus Christ early on. He's setting the tone that God is the supreme ruler of everything for us. And it's not of his own volition, but because God willed it. And it's easy to see that in Paul's life. He was happily riding a donkey one day when God called out to him, took him, and gave him a calling. And Tim, Paul is joined with Timothy, his brother, who quite possibly was physically writing this as Paul dictated it. We'll see it later on. You'll note Paul had major eyesight problems. He hardly ever wrote his letters. He ends this book by telling you, see how big I write? Telling you that Paul autographed it at the end in a way that my daughter would have been proud of. He's writing to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says this, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now this is the part I want you to pay attention to. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, I push you to the entrance into the letter in Corinth from the letter of Colossians because I want you to see that when Paul writes to the church at Colossae and calls them saints, the New Testament idea of a saint is not one who's committed three miracles or one who wears a cool hat or is affirmed by a particular body. No, a saint, according to the Scriptures is one who has called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. So that's how it qualifies you and calls you a saint. If you believe in Jesus, the Bible calls you a saint. Now that's an important and actually necessary theology, isn't it? Because what we want to put before you is what the Bible puts before you, is that it's your belief in Jesus Christ when you believe in Him, 
when you believe in his sufficient death on the cross, that you are positionally sanctified, you are justified in your entirety, that when God the Father looks down upon you, he sees Jesus Christ the Son. Now, it doesn't matter what you've done today, the sins you've struggled with yesterday, or what you're trying not to accomplish in your life, because we all do the things we don't want to do, and we don't do the things we want to do. That's true for all of us. But what the Scripture ascribes to you as sainthood is that you have been positionally sanctified. That God the Father looks at you differently because of what the work of Jesus Christ accomplished for us at the cross. So it calls you a saint. Categorically. If you have believed in Him. And Paul goes so far as to call you faithful. Knowing full well the and the breadth of your ability to sin. So just like the Colossians who are called saints and faithful, so too are you who have believed in Jesus for salvation. And so when Paul writes in Christ at Colossae, it literally says, in Colossae in Christ. Which is a pretty substantial grammatical statement. I don't like to get nerdy on you very often. We step into some nerdum here. That when he writes it this way, in Colossae in Christ, he's actually putting out to you that the greater location for you is not the city you live in, but that you are found in Christ. That that's the greater reality. And that's going to be one of Paul's two great assertions in this book. One, who you are in Jesus Christ. And secondly, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ overall and in all. And we will see both of those things as we work through this book. Verse 3 continues. And we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, we thank God. Now notice that again because Paul is looking at people's lives and he's not attributing their goodness to them. He's attributing it to God. So Paul says, we thank God. When we pray for you. And there are two things that Paul puts before you in these three verses that cause him to thank God. And the first of which is your faith. That you have trusted in Jesus Christ. That you've put your hope in Jesus Christ. It's the most important and significant thing here. That you acknowledge who Jesus is and that you believe in him. Paul says that's the thing, one of the two things I thank God for when I think of you. That you have put your faith in Christ. And secondly, that you love all the saints. That you love the church. And not the building, but the people. And not as a whole, but as individuals. All of them. Not the ones you like. Not the ones you sit 
ones who agree with you politically or philosophically, but that you love all of the saints. And this is a pretty big forecast, particularly in our day, because this is loving all of the saints, not just all of the saints who agree with you theologically. This is not loving all of the saints who go to the same church as you. This is a much bigger reality of loving all of the saints. That we recognize that the greatest reality that we belong to is Jesus Christ. It's not even a church membership. It's why when asked from time to time, why are you a Baptist? I frequently say, I don't identify as Baptist. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest reality I know. And so we have that in common with lots and lots of people who, by the way, believe different things than we do. But it's belief in Jesus Christ and His saints and the love of the body that Paul gives thanks for. That they love the body. 1 John 4.20, John writes this, and quite boldly, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. I tell you, that's strong, and it is. If you claim to love God and hate your brother, the Bible says you lie. John asserts that you cannot truly love God while you're not loving your brothers. What Paul further asserts in there is that the idea that actions actually carry a whole lot more weight than words. That it's awfully easy to say, I this, or I that, or I'm passionate about this, or I'm involved in that, or I love this. And that that all means just about this much. And it's how you practice it is what testifies to what you actually believe. That's why this word orthopraxy exists. Orthodoxy, right belief. Orthopraxy, right action. That who you are, how you carry yourself, the things you actually do testify far more to what you believe than what you say. And Paul acknowledges that. And John acknowledges that. That you cannot say you love God while hating your brothers. And again here, that's a means the fellowship of the believers in Christ. Augustine is attributed with saying the following quote, No man can have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. Why? According to Augustine. Because you can't say you love Christ and dislike his bride. Again, this is a modern construct. Even brought on the last decade or so, the idea that I love Jesus, but I don't really like the church. I don't really want to be a part of the church. That's an incredibly synchronistic idea. And let's just set it, step into that full on face forward. This is an incredibly imperfect body. This room is full of some of the nastiest sinners that live in the area. Can I get some more amens? If you get let down by somebody in this room, please do not be surprised. It happens all the time. This is not a perfect group of people. Far from it. I'm the worst. The church exists to glorify Jesus, not to put men on display. 
We are not perfect people. So if you have been hurt or broken by the church, if you've been wounded by the church, this is your club. Because I suspect if we sat down and started talking about it, you'd find there are a lot of people here who've been hurt and wounded by churches. And we can share our stories and, and our brokennesses through that. And we might even come together through that. But the reality is, those are broken people that gave us bad experiences and not always God's body. And so what we want to do is we want to be a part of a church, a gathering of people who are not perfect, who are not getting it right, who are not going to do everything to the ideal because we exalt Jesus Christ. And we want to put before you the reality that He alone is sufficient. He alone is the only one that will never, ever, ever, ever let you down. And so we can boast of our weaknesses. I can stand before you and tell you we're not perfect. We're not getting it right. Why? Because Jesus is sufficient. He alone is the only one. That's why this idea of I love Jesus but don't need the church exists. Because people are buying into a synchronistic idea that I can love and follow Jesus and don't actually follow what he says. In fact, I can disobey him in a way that he clearly states that if I don't love him, I'm not following him. And I can disobey him, do exactly the opposite of what he tells me, and still claim to follow him. Do you see the issue with that? That we decide what we want to do. That we decide what we want to practice. Then we come to this book and we say, oh, that, that makes sense to me. I will step into this. Yeah, that's antiquated. That's not for me. And that's the problem. We come to God as he is, as if he's a buffet line. I want the chicken. I want the mashed potatoes, but leave the green beans out. Ooh, and I want pie and jello. This is what Paul is going to go after in this book. This favoritism, this picking and selecting what you want to build the Jesus that you want, the church that you want. Paul gives thanks that they believe in Jesus. Paul gives thanks that they follow him and that their following him is defined by their obedience to his teaching in loving the saints. So Paul gives thanks. Because he sees congruence in what they believe and how they practice. And that the faith and the love come from, Paul continues on, that the faith and the love that they have comes from the hope that they have. The one true hope. The only hope. The hope that will last far longer than Rome and the hope that will last far longer than the United States. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. The only true source for faith and for love. Hebrews 10.4 puts it this way, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
The author of Hebrews continues, therefore, to suggest that that's why Christ came into the world, that there was no way that men could accomplish it on their own. There was no right action. There was no right path. There's no way we could accomplish it on our own. Therefore, Christ was sent into the world And that's faith. And Jesus calls us not to love each other in this tit for tat. I want to be nice to you so that you'll be nice to me kind of love. Rather, Jesus asserts in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. So we are called then as believers not to love each other in a way that's equal, But I want to love you in a way that shows Jesus, which is far beyond equal. It's far, far beyond equal. And that's the measure of faith and love that the Bible calls us true. The true faith and the true love that comes from the true hope that we have. And look where it comes from in verse 5, the second half. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth the truth, the gospel. And do note that before Paul calls it the gospel, he calls it the truth. And he'll repeat that claim again in verse 6. The truth, an objective reality. This is Paul pushing back on syncretism again. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, word for word, is claiming to be the truth, the only truth, the exclusive truth, regardless of whether that's comfortable, regardless of whether or not your neighbors believe it, regardless of whether or not it's easy to get your mind around. David Garland, in his commentary on Colossians, wrote this. Fewer Christians today take for granted that Christianity provides the standard of truth and morality by which all life and all other religions can be assessed. Many assume that we all worship the same God and that whatever a person chooses to believe about that God is valid or just or just as good as another's belief. Hear that. Garland is forecasting that we've walked into a completely synchronistic society when we don't value truth anymore. The truth is so relative that whatever you believe is fine. I'm not going to step into that from my own fear to offend you. That if you want to believe in a flying spaghetti monster, you can. Because I don't want to offend you. He continues, to questions one belief system is to be unpardonably judgmental and intolerant. Friends, what I want to put before you as the Colossians and the rest of the New Testament would say is that's actually love. That to love somebody with the truth is significant. And we'll talk about that in a second. But what Dr. Garland is observing is synchronism. That fewer and fewer Christians, people who claim the name of Jesus Christ, take him at his word. That believe he is who he said he was in favor of a more palatable, less offensive Jesus, who is mildly mannered, more tame, and one of the many paths to God. 
I was reading a uh, st- research study over the break. David Barner, who does the Barner research, had, they did a large study, and it's interesting if you lean into the stats, the number of Americans who claim to be Christians, they're still relatively high. What becomes shocking then is if you step into the stats after that. What are the number of people who still believe that God's word is true? Surprisingly low. That when you really want to lean into what does it mean to be a Christian, people define it as a cultural practice, not as an actual belief in Jesus the Christ as one we might actually follow and do what he says. Paul writes that this gospel, the truth, that Jesus Christ is the only way and that this gospel is changing the world. And Paul puts that before us in verse 6. The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. This is Paul who traveled the known world, knew the truth, and had seen the truth grow the world over. It's one of the sweet pictures that our friends who are traveling to Rwanda will see. They'll see the gospel of grace going out in truth in Africa on a continent that has known incredible pain. And have the opportunity to love and to pour into pastors who carry that message further and further and further. Why? Because the truth is growing and the truth is spreading. Verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. What Paul asserts here is as you see the truth spreading, and it gives you the example, that Epaphras, who likely came to Christ in Ephesus, that under the ministry of Paul, goes back to his native Colossae and begins to tell people the truth, or, as we like to call it, the gospel. And they understand the grace of God and truth, and then they share it. Because as Paul puts it, the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, just as it does among you. They step into it. So Paul puts before them the example of the gospel going out in truth, forecasting to them and foreshadowing to them and clarifying them the synchronism that follows it. That it's possible for any of us and for all of us, if we've walked with Jesus for so long, if we don't watch our practices, we buy into a cultural belief that we could come to Christ in faith and still come to church out of obligation. That we could come to Christ in faith and add all sorts of other practices that are eroding our faith, but that we think will make us holy. Paul takes all of those philosophies and ideas on in this book, and he points them to the truth. Friends, in Jesus Christ, we have the truest truth that the world knows. And we have something far greater and far more superior than Rome. We have something far greater and far more superior than any human construct, than any other philosophy, 
than any other practice can derive. We have a hope that springs from the gospel. We have a hope that yields faith and love. And we have a hope that is bearing fruit and increasing. It's our hope. is Jesus Christ, who is completely supreme and incredibly sufficient in all things. And as we walk through the rest of this book, my prayer for us is that our confidence in Jesus Christ would increase. That our confidence in the truth would increase. And that our boldness about the truth and about Jesus Christ would increase. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Thank you for Paul, who knew you, who followed you, who told your truth to Epaphras, who went back to his city and told people your truth. Father, just as the church at Colossae, who heard the truth, who responded to the truth, wandered into synchronism, Father, so can we. And so, Father, I pray for us as a body that you would purify us, that you'd wipe us clean of things that don't lead to you, things that diminish your authority, things that deny your kingship in our lives. Father, that we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. That we would know the truth about Jesus Christ, all of it. And Father, that we would surrender ourselves to the great Redeemer who would go to the cross on our behalf to set us free. A freedom that we cannot find in any other human entity. And yet, Father, it's so easy for us to turn and choose things that are far less than Your Son. Father, I pray for us that You'd purify our faiths, that You'd lead us to the truth, and You'd make us bold about the truth. In Your name we pray. Amen.